I grew up in New York City, born in Harlem, raised in the Bronx. And in elementary school, kindergarten, we made our first books. As we learned the alphabet, we did pictures for each letter. And when we reached letter Z, the teacher gave us construction paper. We sewed the pages together. She said, you've just published an alphabet book. You are the author, the illustrator, the binder. Take it home. You are the distributor as well. Now, when I brought that book home, I got so much praise for it, I could hardly wait to go back to kindergarten and publish more books. When we learned the numbers, we did pictures for each number, sewed it together a numbers book, learned to spell words, boy, cat, hat, box, block. We sewed it together with a, a word book. And so I continued making books from kindergarten on. I've never stopped. All through the years, I've made books as gifts, as presents for family and friends. And I continued that into college, taking a course in book illustration as well. But it had always been a, a part of my life as an artist, drawing and painting and making the little books as gifts. Well, during the Depression years, there was not extra money for buying books, but my brother, sister, and I, we went to the library, and we took out the library books, and then with empty orange crates, we would set our books in those crates and pretend it was our own home library. So we always had books in the home, and that continued later as well. And that's what I tell the children wherever I go. I say, I know you go to the public library, you go to your school library, but are you building your own home library? And so I emphasize that books in the home are very valuable and important thing through life. Well, there's no question about the arts as a part of being human and being a whole person. And it's unfortunate when they begin cutting programs in the arts because they are essential, really, if you're going to create a citizenry that you can be comfortable with who will be contributors to a society. And so I think that should never be on a, a budget where you say, now we cannot afford this program because you'll pay much more later when you've cut those programs out. Many children find their way of carrying all their responsibilities through being gifted in one form of the arts or another. And they use that form and that strength they gain from it to carry every other area of study that they're involved in. And to take that out and to have a child floundering with no sense of achievement in any area of what it is to study and to learn and to grow is very unfortunate. Well, I was always drawing and painting, and when I was in high school, I decided that since that was what I was always doing, that was my passionate interest, that I would pursue that as a career. And so... In high school, I'd always been encouraged, all through the years, encouraged by teachers. I grew up in the Bronx in New York, communities, the Irish, the Italian, the Polish, a large Jewish community. I was always encouraged by my teachers. All my teachers had been white through high school. When I graduated high school with a portfolio to make the rounds of the art schools for a scholarship, because with the number of children in our family, you could not go further without a scholarship. And I applied for scholarship in one of the leading art institutes in New York City and was told this is the best portfolio we have seen but it would be a waste to give a scholarship to a colored person. Well, I went back to the high school and they said, look Ashley, you've graduated in January, take a postgraduate course, do any work you like with us and develop your portfolio even further. And in the summer, take the exam for the Cooper Union School of Art and Engineering. They do not see you there. In the summer, I took that exam in 1940, and it was in three parts. You did a drawing exercise, an exercise in sculpture. You bought a bar of plasticine clay, 
and an exercise in architecture. You put your responses on the tray and set it on the great hall of the Cooper Union and with your name and address. And on the basis of that, the selection for admission was made. And I was fortunate to be one of the small group that was admitted to the Cooper Union. Now, the Cooper Union continues as tuition-free to this day. If you get past whatever their requirements are, you have your undergraduate tuition covered in the fields of art and in engineering as well. If I meet with elementary school children, I will start right off giving varieties of demands for the voice that the words of the page will ask. And then at a certain point, I will take a poem that I've read very slowly and quietly and compare it to a poem that's read very forcefully with a, a rich, vigorous voice, and I'll read it with that quiet, slow, concerned voice. And the students immediately see that you may be a good reader, but the poet is not asking for that voice. So I try to demonstrate right off the importance of listening for the sound of the voice in the printed word, because then the words are speaking to you. And when words are speaking to you, you are actively engaged, and then you get meaning. But when you are pronouncing, as many children will be doing, when asked at the end of a sentence, what have you read? They'll say, what do you mean? I said every word. They've said every word. They have not listened. They have not heard the sound of the voice in the printed word. That is my major emphasis wherever I go. Listen for the sound of the voice in the printed word. Now, we, I speak of it to my young ones almost literally. My little preschoolers, when I've finished a program with them, they'll often come up and take the books from which I've been reading and put it to the ear to see if they can hear it, because they listen for the sound of the voice in the printed word. But these little four or five-year-olds, and they're hearing it literally. It's a virtual sense in which we are readers and create as we read. But it is active in every read. It is one of the most creative things you can do to read, because you engage the mind when you read. You create the scene. You create the instant, you create the action. Everything about it is being created. And that's why I've always said a child who will at any time of the day sit with a book reading, you don't have to worry about all the technology of the world today. They can be involved in everything of it, but if they will spend any time with the book, engaging the mind actively in that way, creating a world out of those words, you don't have to worry about them. It's those who have turned the book aside who will have nothing to do with books anymore. Those are the ones we have to work with and try to bring into it. And I always have felt that I can associate the excitement of the voice with the book that will bring them into becoming readers. Well, I'm working with African folk tales, and these come from an oral tradition. I'm working from documents of stories which were taken down by linguists, anthropologists, missionaries, who wanted to get written alphabets of these hundreds of tribal languages, you see, which were not written languages, yet story was a very vital part of the life in the day. Now, those linguists and anthropologists wanted to get written alphabets to create a dictionary of those languages. And what they would do, they generally would ask for stories. But the stories, when told by the informant, was very often summarized. It was like a precy of the motif. They did very valuable work in documenting the story motifs. But very rarely 
was it told in a way that when it entered the book, you felt the richness of the oral tradition. Now, I work from these documents. I work from the Schomburg Library in Harlem in New York City, 135th Street and Lenox Avenue. It's a research library. People have come from all over the world to use those resources. Today, with the internet and all of that, they don't have to leave anywhere. They can tap into those resources from home. But they have the works that are long out of print from the 1800s and early 1900s. And these are the sources that I work from. I go to the Schomburg Library. I copy out these documents of stories when there are stories that interest me. And then I become the storyteller. Now, what can I do? with stories that were in the oral tradition and it's going to be in a book. How can I bring something of the feeling of the oral tradition into my writing? Ah, through poetry. I use the devices of poetry in my prose. In reading any of my stories you're going to hear the rhyme, the rhythm, the, syne uh, the syncopation, you'll find onomatopoeia, the playing with sounds. All of the devices of poetry work closely in my prose. What often a prose writer will avoid because they would want you to read more fluently, more directly, I am seizing upon and using in the way I write my stories. I would like my reader to feel, while reading the story even silently, that he or she can hear the storyteller. You see. And so by using those devices of poetry, I open that up quite directly. So my work has been to open up contributions of black peoples to the audience as a whole, because that at one point was closed. There was a time in 1965 when Nancy Larrick wrote her essay, The All-White World of Children's Books. Now that was what shook up the field in 1965. Now Jean Call had come to me earlier in the 60s and I was working with her before that article came out. But when that article came out a group of people got together black and white and they, they formed the Coretta Scott King Award. Now that award was formed to recognize the very few blacks who were in the field at the time and to encourage publishers to open up to a recognition of what it meant to be United States. United States means people from all over the world. The only indigenous Americans are the Native Americans. Everyone else has come from another country. And they've all fed into the culture of the United States. But it was very restricted and limited. Well, when blacks open the door, it's open to everyone. The Native American came through, people from Poland came through, people from China, people from parts of India, from Japan, from the different countries of Africa, all began to enter the field of young people's books so that today you have a variety of backgrounds for a child to relate to, not only to his or her own, but to other children and other people that really make up the world. And the work in that area is very rich today. You have people from all these backgrounds who are doing significant work the artwork is so, so beautiful that you can develop your aesthetic response to art through picture books. Well, for this book, Let It Shine, I chose three of the most popular spirituals. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, when the saints go marching in and he's got the whole world in his hands. Now this is my sixth selection from the body of spirituals. The spirituals, because slaves were not permitted to learn to read or write, 
these songs are extraordinary. The instruments were taken from them. They worked from dark of the day to the dark of the night. But they had this freedom of the mind, which was a gift they had to be expressive in some way, to offer something creative of their lives. And they created this song called Spirituals. See? And these songs are now loved and sung throughout the world. And I have always wanted to get them out in ways in which I could do the pictures to them. I've always felt that the incredible gift of language to a people who are not permitted to learn to read or write, and they could create songs based on what they heard of biblical stories and of their own experiences, you know, and create a, mu a music that has just taken hold of people wherever. And our concert singers have taken those songs throughout the world. And when I studied in France and in Germany, the students sang spirituals. They knew them well. And in our country, somehow, they're often called traditional or American folk tune. They've entered the hymnals of all denominations. But when you turn to the back of the book to find, I find the song, Let Us Break Bread Together on Our Knees, I turn to the song. It says, traditional American folk tune. You still don't know that it comes from black slaves. Wherever I travel in the United States, I ask the children, anyone here know a spiritual? Black American spiritual, American folk tune, you know, a, a black American folk, so, um, folk song. No hands will go up. But then if I say, he's got the whole world, they sing me down. There's the light of mine, I'm, they sing me down. They know the songs. They are not taught historically, so they do not know. Many adults love and sing them and are surprised when I say, oh, that's a spiritual. Let us break bread together. On, on. Oh, we sing that at communion in our church. That's a spiritual. That's a spiritual? They're surprised. I sometimes will choose a story that has a pattern that's well known. So in one of my stories in, B, in uh, my, my book of Ashley Bryant's African Folk Tales, uh -huh, um, there's a story of a hen and frog, and they meet. And it begins in this way, and you're going to hear the poetry now. I've told one tale. Here's another, call your sister, call your brother. The frog and hen once met. They walked along together, hen strut. Two steps, a peck at a bug, frog a buck. Three hot flicked his tongue at a fly just to run. Two steps, a peck at a bug a buck. Three hops, a flick at a fly, hen a flap her wings and spun around. Frog a slapped his legs and tapped the ground. Clocked hen, how do you like the weather now? Croaked frog, oh, click clack, there's a dark cloud. I know it, a storm's coming. Strut, two steps, a peck at a bug. It's still a far way off, said frog. A buck, three hops, a flick at a fly. Good, said hen, then it's time. Frog, help me make a hut before the storm hits. Oh, not me said frog. Here's a neat hole. I'm going to get into that. Uh-uh. I won't help you make a hut. Suit yourself, said Hen. If you won't help me, then I'll make the hut for self. That's the way this story begins. Now the pattern the children start picking up on. They know the story of the little red hen who goes out to plant the grain and asks the other, will you help me plant the grain? No, will you help me water it? Will you help me cut it? Will you help me grind it? Will you help me make the dough? Will you help me bake the bread? When it comes, will you help me eat the bread? They're all ready and hen says, uh-uh. Well, this is a pattern 
from the house of people of Nigeria. It's a pattern that they know. And it opens to them. Story patterns travel the world from culture to culture. They're told in different ways, but you recognize the pattern. Now, this begins in that way. They know that the hen is going to build a hut by itself. She's going to ask the, the frog, will you help me then make a bed for the hut? He's going to say no. Will you help me gather some food? So when the storm is through, we say no. But then when the storm hits and he's flooded out of his home, he's going to come knocking on hen's door. He wants to come in, you see. So it, the anticipation is a wonderful aspect of storytelling, even though you know it, you see. I think that's why you go again and again to see plays that we've enjoyed, uh, performed by different groups, and even though we know the outcome, we're trying to, if it's a sad one, we want to change. You can see Romeo and Juliet ten times, and you want to, you're urging it to be changed, but you're caught up in that pattern. You know that it has to work through in that way. And so that's what I've enjoyed about the story, introducing not only the feeling of the voice, the rhythm, the different ways a storyteller is engaged, you know, and has, can make a, uh, a real difference in what the word on the page says and how the voice will dramatize it is very important in what I write. The Reading Rockets Meet the Author series is a production of WETA. Major funding for Reading Rockets comes from the United States Department of Education, Office of Special Education Programs. For more author interviews, recommended reading lists, and information about teaching kids to read, please visit us online at www.readingrockets.org.